peace to you, and welcome to a sermon podcast from Richfield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sign up for weekly digital content at richfieldumc.org. Subscribe, share, and get out there with Jesus to heal a broken world. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a good experience. This podcast is the sermon on November 10th, 2019. Invest in the Risk is part three of the five-part worship series, Invest in the Story. The preacher is Reverend Nate Melcher, and the scripture is Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 19 through 25. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 9, and it is immediately what follows Saul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He has been converted, he has been healed by God through Ananias, and now he cannot help but get out there and preach it to the people. For several days, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man the one who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And after some time had passed, uh, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gate that day and all night so that they might kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's an article in the paper this week, maybe you saw it, it was on Monday, about this uh, article about this phrase, okay boomer. Has anybody heard that phrase before? Okay boomer. Uh, Basically, it's this phrase that some young adults use kind of as a joke response to boomers or older adults who are showing that they are willfully ignorant especially about trying to learn about the technology that they're using. Essentially, it's a comment on, okay, you want to use the technology, but you don't want to learn how to use the technology. Okay, boomer. And it's it's a little sassy, at the very least. Uh, The example in the article, the writer says, it would be like an older person coming up to a younger person and saying, hey, I want the internet to help me get directions. So the younger person says, oh, just tell your phone where you want to go, and it'll be your map. Oh, yeah, but I just, can't I just use the internet to print off the map? Well, your phone can be the map. I just want to use the internet to print the map. Okay, boomer. And it kind of ends there. Now, here's the thing. Boomers, do you remember how it felt teaching your parents how to use the VCR? That's how it feels for young people about the phones. Uh, people in the silent generation, do you remember what it was like trying to teach your parents how to use the phone when the introduction, extra, introduction of party lines and all that? Same feeling again, okay? Now, I want to give generations the benefit of the doubt. I think that's important. I don't think we should be flippantly throwing out uh, phrases at each other. However, in the same section of the paper, just two pages down, is a column devoted to people writing in to ask if TV shows are still on the air. It's next to the TV listings. And the way that they write in isn't with a call or a letter. They have to email the columnist to find out if the show is still on the air. They're already on the internet, and they're paying this man to Google it for them. So I don't know what to do with that. 
Uh, on the other hand, I'm a Gen Xer who reads the print paper, so what do I know about generations? Now, generational gap is not necessarily new. In fact, we've got a quote here for you. Uh, maybe you've read this quote before. The children now love luxury. They show disrespect for elders, and they love chatter in place of exercise. Children are tyrants, not servants of the households. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize over their teachers. Can you imagine? Kids today, am I right? Those young people today. So this quote is often attributed to Socrates via 399 BCE. This gap between generations is nothing new. We get to decide what we're going to do with it in our time. Saul is experiencing a tremendous gap with the people in the story. They don't know if they, he, they, don't know if they can trust him because of his story. He once persecuted people. He dragged them from their homes, and now he is converted, and he's out to convert. He's preaching the gospel, and he's even going so far as to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. And this is the only time anybody uses the phrase Son of God in the whole book of Acts. This is new information, and he's telling them all these new things, and they don't like it. They don't trust it, and they don't trust him. Now, we have seen an intrusive God try to get people ready for God-sized dreams over and over as we've read Acts of the Apostles this year. And some are ready, and some are not. Now, sometimes it's the message. The gospel truth is a disruptive truth. It calls for skin in the game and commitment of the heart. If our hearts are more focused on preferences and comfort than God's dreams, it can be challenging to hear what God has to say and even more challenging to do something about it. Sometimes it's because of the messenger, like Saul. You know, God sends the people who are attentive to God's dreams into our midst and invites God to break through where we are and do a new thing. In the case of Saul, the one who was the persecutor, the one whom was different, the one whom they feared. For some, it was just simply too much. It's a reminder that Saul's spiritual journey, it didn't happen all on that road right at once in his conversion moment. It continues on and on as he meets more people. It's a journey like it is for most of us. As a church, we are praying that God will break in and reveal to us a God-sized dream that unites us for the future of our church. We do this as we also spend time reflecting on our mission and why we commit financially to our church. Now last week, we remembered the legacy of foundation for those who came before us and laid that foundation in their time. Today we consider, what are we committing ourselves to for those who aren't here yet? for those who will come beyond our time. It's a topic that I know is on your heart because you told me so. Over the last two or three months, we've had a series of 12 meet and greets, and around 100 people have come out to these meet and greets. And when I ask people, what is your dream for the church? The number one thing that comes up over and over again is reaching out to young people. How do we reach young people? How do we remain relevant and vibrant to a new generation? And we especially feel it since statistically, younger generations are not in the church, so to speak. To be a church that is relevant, and there's pain there. As I've listened to your stories, there's pain there, because some of them are your adult age children or grandchildren, and that's hard. 
But there's also hope, friends. God dreams God-sized dreams. Now, in the paper a couple weeks ago, and yeah, I read it in my print paper. I did. Uh, We maybe saw an article about how there's this new Minnesota firm that's seeking to figure out what's replacing religion for young people as they try to seek the spiritual and long for meaning in their lives. Now, studies show that young adults are overwhelmingly seeking to be part of something bigger than themselves, desiring to be welcomed and loved so that they can share that welcome and love right back. That's what all of our studies are showing. There's also research to show that young adults as a demographic simply aren't seeing the capital C church, the big church, all of us church, they're not seeing this as the best way to do that. So as I preached on Confirmation Sunday uh, two weeks ago, I mentioned how some studies are showing that older generations have a very devout loyalty to institutions, whereas younger generations have this tremendous devout loyalty to their friends. And we see that in the data. Now here's the trick. Older generations sometimes get frustrated when younger generations don't participate in the institutions that they made. And yet, if these institutions are hurting their friends, they don't want anything to do with that. And that's like like a persecuted people who aren't sure if they can trust the gospel because of Saul's story. So we can't blame young people if the institution hasn't been working. Instead, we get to learn from young people. And I know there are some young people here right now, and I'm sorry to talk about you in the third person, uh, but I'd love to talk with you more in person, and so would all of us. Let's talk about membership a little bit. This is a chart that shows denominational membership over a period of eh, not quite 100 years in the United States. So you can see some lines down there between two and four million, this denominational membership. I see the Reformed Church, the Episcopal Church, uh, some Baptist churches, Presbyterians, the Lutherans. You can see them going up. They kind of get high in the 1950s, and they get really high in the 70s, and they start to have that decline as we hit 2000. That line way up there, the green one, near eight million, going up to 10 million. Anyone know that one? Can you see it? That's United Methodist Church. All right, Methodists. We were so big. The bigger you are, the bigger the fall. Maybe that's why Methodists feel it more, because we have, we're such a big presence and we have lost so many people in such a big way. Maybe that's why we're feeling it quite a bit these days. But that's how we've looked in terms of uh, denominational membership. Now, the age gap for people who are in churches and worshiping, that religious attendance was narrower in previous decades. So again, in the 1950s into the 1960s, there actually isn't a gap. The lines between those who are ages 40 plus, that's the blue line, and the line for those who are ages 18 to 39, that's the red line, they're actually right on top of each other as the 50s become the 60s. And you can see how the gap continues to spread, and sure, it's gotten closer here and there, but now it's as wide as it's ever been. It doesn't necessarily surprise me that in the 50s and 60s, it was really close together. That was a time of the church really on fire as we were in this post-World War II time, right? Let's talk about generations a second. So I have up here some pictures of different generations by years and by names. Let's talk about generations because we all have our life-defining events. We've all got our key Uh, technological advancements, and our preferred methods of communication. 
So, for example, folks who were born 1900 to 1924, they're sometimes called the GI generation. Anybody in that? You're born between 1900 and 1924? Right, there's a couple of you. And how about traditionalists or silent generation? That's 1925 to 1945. Anybody born there? Okay. So here's some of the things that sociologists tell us about the GI generation and the silent generation. They tell us that some of your life-defining moments were World War I or stepping out of it into World War II, the Great Depression, and the advent of the household electric appliance. Your key communication style was writing the letter and the radio. And your key in technological innovation was the refinement of the automobile the car, the transition from horse and buggy to horse and buggy next to car to just car happened there. If we look at the baby boomers, 1946 to 1964, who was born in that era? All right, about half the room. Here's what they say about boomers. Some of your key life moments were the Cold War, the moon landing, the transistor was invented, radio became portable. Uh, your key communication style, the telephone, became huge. And then the key technological innovation, a television set in every living room. For Generation X, that's 1965 to 1979, who are the Xers in the room? I am by one year. Here's a couple. So for us, our life-defining moments would be the end of the Cold War. Live Aid, or We Are the World, We Are the Children, the advent of the first personal computers in the home. Our key communication style was email. And our key technological innovation is that personal computer, to have a computer at our fingertips at an affordable price in the home. Let's think about millennials, sometimes called Generation Y. They were born in the 1980s to the 1990s. Anyone there? There's a few. So here's what they say. Key life moments would be uh, the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks. Uh, the Iraq War. This is a generation where we've pretty much always been at war with somebody. The advent of social media. Key communication styles is not email, but the instant message. And the key technological innovation is the smartphone. So what about children? Look at Generation Z, sometimes called Centennials. They were born in the late 90s up till now. Anybody born between the late 90s and now? Some up there? You, yes. Here's what they're telling us about your generation, buddy. You're living in a post-Great Recession. It's not the Depression, but it's got those echoes to it, and that's their childhood. Uh, they have Arab Spring, and they have the rise of artificial intelligence. The key communication style is not email, it's not uh, instant message, it's the emoji. You can say it all in a smiley face. And the key technological innovation is augmented reality and virtual reality. That's kind of generations in a nutshell. Let's talk about younger folks in terms of where they're at with the church. So Barna Group says that there are four kinds of young adults who grew up in the church and or are still in the church, and he breaks them up 
the Barna group breaks them up into these different groups of exiles. Exiles taking on this uh, biblical image from uh, the time when the Babylonians conquered Israel and either killed people, enslaved people, or sent them away. So they're all scattered. They're in exile. So these are the young adults who have felt scattered in the last 20, 25 years of the church. And they say that there are prodigals who would be ex-Christians, nomads, lapsed Christians, you have habitual churchgoers, and resilient disciples. The prodigals reminds me of that story of the prodigal and his sibling, that, uh, that parable that Jesus tells. And so these are people who, they left the church frustrated, and they don't know if and when they will be welcomed back. With the nomads, these are people who, they're wandering, they're seeking something. They didn't find anything of value in their church, and they're open, but they don't know where to start. How do I even go back to church? It's been so long. And then for habitual churchgoers, these are folks who are there in the midst of the life of the church, but the key word is habitual in that they participate, but that's different than being on fire for Jesus. And then you get this bottom 10%, this very stalwart 10% of resilient disciples. These are the young people who are on fire for Jesus in ways that would really kickstart a lot of our own hearts for Jesus. They are fully in. And if a church is a nonprofit, instead of helping people to have new living encounters with Jesus, if it's just a social club, instead of raising up disciples with intentional faith development, if it's just a bunch of fair-weather fans instead of attempting to name the moments when God breaks through in our lives to build a new legacy, then these people, the resilient disciples, they'll leave nonprofits and social clubs because they want to find a church. They talk about being post-Christian, which is you grew up Christian, but now you are going beyond the Christian culture that you were in, or something that just isn't clicking with you the way it used to. And this is a big list, and I think it's a little hard to see. I'm sorry about that. But what they say is that people who are post-Christian are individuals who meet nine or more of these 16 criteria. So criteria like, these are people who no longer believe in God. They maybe identify as an atheist or agnostic, as many of you know I used to in my young adulthood. They haven't prayed to God in the last week. They disagree on biblical accuracy. They haven't donated money to a church in the last year. They haven't attended a Christian church in the last six months. Uh, they don't feel a responsibility to share their faith, to evangelize, even at a level that they're comfortable to do. They don't feel that they are obligated or need to. They haven't read the Bible in the last week. They haven't volunteered at church in the last week, haven't attended Sunday school, haven't attended a religious small group in the last week, and so on. And here's the thing. This is not just about young adults. This is about all of us as a church. We all get to kind of weigh, where are we in the midst of our spiritual renaissance as a church? All churches get to ask themselves, are we spiritually engaged in the mission of the church, or does the church need a spiritual reawakening? This is a day-to-day -day prayer for all churches across, probably not just the nation, but the world. And young adults are especially feeling this push-pull effect if they did grow up in a church. And it has to do with this re divided religious landscape that can just drain young people emotionally and spiritually. They can be crushed by expectation or given license to float away. So a very, very oversimplified way of thinking about it, very oversimplified way, is that if a young person grows up in a certain kind of very conservative uh, Christian um, church, 
they might be given a checklist kind of Christianity, the kind of Christianity that says you will do this, you won't do this, and if you do all this, then you're in. But then these young people go off to become young adults, they're on their own, and maybe they suffer their first big mistake, or they're the victim of their first major trauma. And whatever it is, it disrupts this checklist, and they don't know what to do about it, but they know they can't go back to their church, so they slip away. But on the other hand, if you go to a certain kind of very progressive church, these are young people who grew up and they're told, well, we don't want to impose on you. We don't want to have to tell you exactly how religion works. We want you to figure it out for yourselves. So you keep asking really good questions. Don't ask me questions. I don't really know any answers, but uh, you'll figure it out. And then these young people are given so much license to figure it out, but no grounding that they just kind of flutter away. Because if the adults in their lives don't show them why it's valuable to them, why should they see it as valuable for themselves? And so, if I use the Bible as a metaphor, it'd be like if over here you grip the Bible so tight you crush it in your hands, and over here you hold the Bible so loosely it just flutters from your fingers, where are the churches where the Bible is here and open for everybody to engage and ask big questions together across generations? It will never be 1955 again. Unless you're Marty McFly, you want to go back to the future with 1955. It's never going to be 1955 again. But here's the thing, friends. This notion of young adults outside the church, we have dealt with this before. We have dealt with it before. Let's look at that denominational membership list again. So you can see the United Methodist Church, we were really big, bigger than the rest. We had a big bump, and now we're having a huge decline. We can see everybody's membership shot up in the 1950s, and then peaked in the 70s, yes. But look at 1925, that first dot on this line. Before the post-World War II boost, when everybody, quote-unquote everybody, was in church, before that literal baby boom of membership, we have always been challenged to grow the church. There was barely anybody in the church around the time of World War I. We have had membership issues since our days in the colonies. So this is nothing new. The good old days were an anomaly, if we think about it's always been that way in the 1950s and 1960s. We get to go back to the old ways of trying to figure out what are we going to do about it? And going back to the old ways of figuring it out might be exactly what we need. So what does God call us to do, friends? I think God calls us to love them all. Bring those resilient disciples to the table. These are young people hungry for Jesus. And if they come in our midst, we need to be careful that we don't say, oh, we're so glad you're here. We're going to go ahead and have our adult committee table over here now. You go ahead to the, to the kiddie table. That's not going to work. They're going to find another church. So we've got to welcome those resilient disciples. We've got to, uh, we've got to hug those prodigals. We've got to welcome those nomads, and we have to affirm the exiles for every part of their journey. We need to remember no one has served our time. This is an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing for our church, right? God is still working on every single one of us. We need to cultivate a culture that embraces change as others did for you. Because in some of our meet-and-greets, as I've learned about what was available for some of you when you were young adults, I guarantee you, People in the church did
did everything they could to make those ministries happen so that you had a place in the church, whether it's through financial contributions or being there as a volunteer uh, to make it happen. They knew it was important to get you in here. And finally, we have to be mindful of the legacy we create for who's next. Friends, we don't have a young adult outreach line item in the 2019 budget. That changes in 2020. And we need your support to make that happen. Will you commit to the future of your church as we look for new ways to reach out to young adults together through our financial commitment and through our uh, giving of our time and energy as well? Friends, Jesus is pointing at this gap that we can bridge together as a church. We can bridge it because Jesus can. Because Jesus' gospel is more powerful than anything in this world. And God believes in us that we have the ways to make it happen. May it be so, and amen. This has been a sermon podcast from Richfield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, copyright 2019. Now, go into God's world, knowing that you are a beloved child of God, and bear witness to the love of God, so that those to whom love is a stranger will find in you a generous friend. Thanks for listening.